Kane Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Kuhn Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 the Herald Scotland, on Wednesday the 11th of October 2023. From the news section. Young carers advocate for access to mobile phones at school. An article by Garrett Stell and read by me, Corey. Young carers in Scotland argue that mobile phones are more than a luxury for them and school policies need to consider their unique responsibilities. Last week, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan and the UK Department for Education backed a full ban on mobile phones in English schools. With questions about whether Scotland would follow, a recent poll of Herald readers found that 99% of responders support a similar mobile phone ban in Scottish schools. But Fraser Bradwell of Unity Enterprise, a career service in South Ayrshire, said that thousands of Scottish students are someone's primary caregiver. For these young carers, the situation isn't so black and white. Unity believes it is imperative that young carers are able to maintain contact during the school day, both for their own well-being and that of the person they care for. Some young carers choose not to attend school rather than face the stress and anxiety of being out of contact for a whole day, compounding the inequality they already face. He added that requests for consideration shouldn't be seen as children looking to skirt the rules. Any suggestion that young carers gain an unfair advantage or perk by being permitted to maintain contact with the person they care for, is entirely misplaced. There are lots of different ways in which schools can accommodate this, and many of the schools we work with in Ayrshire have systems in place to do just that. We're simply calling for this to be applied across all schools and see no reason why a more consistent approach cannot be achieved. Critics of phones in schools say they are sources of distraction and bullying. Others say they are not necessary classroom resources, given the fact that many local authorities provide electronic devices to support lessons. Kelly Munro, Education Officer for Carers Trust Scotland, shared the story of one Scottish student who withdrew from school due to the worry and stress of not being able to contact the person they cared for, when the school adopted a ban on mobile phones. Fortunately, their local care service was able to work with the young carer and school, 
They created a plan which allowed the young person access to their phones throughout the day so they could check on the cared for person and get the young carer back to school. She said this episode illustrates how the distraction caused by worrying throughout the school day can be more disruptive than checking messages between classes. A Scottish government spokesman said that, although decisions to ban phones are left to local authorities, the Education Secretary, Jenny Gilruth, has been clear that she is keen to examine all evidence on this issue. The Scottish Government has provided advice and guidance on the use of mobile phones in schools, which include that consideration should be given to the needs of some pupils, such as young carers, worried about the health of family members. Carers Trust Scotland welcomed the news that Scotland would not follow in England's footsteps with a blanket ban. But advocates warn that any attempt to consult whether young carers will fall short because the majority are unknown to their school. According to statistics from Carers Trust Scotland, roughly 5,000 young carers are recorded in CMIS, the Student Data Management System in Scotland. The Trust says that number is in stark contrast to the 30,000 carers recognised by the Scottish Government. To combat this, Max Green, MSYP, submitted a motion in July to the Scottish Youth Parliament, calling for mandatory training for identifying and supporting young carers in Scottish schools. Carers Trust Scotland is currently engaging with local authorities to implement training for guidance teachers and to include more young carers in CMIS records. Miss Munro said, Young carers report that they often worry about the person they care for whilst at school, and a complete ban would only heighten this. Young carers often remain hidden for a variety of reasons. Some of the top reasons given are stigma and fear of families being split up. It is vital that education professionals undertake young carer awareness training, so more young carers can be identified supported and recorded in school, so they can get the help they are entitled to. All young carers in Scotland have the right to a young carer statement. This statement will detail any support needs the young carer may have, including access to their phone. That article was from the Herald Scotland. It was from the news section. It was written by Garrett Stell. And it was read by me, Corey. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 11th of October 2023 from the business section. Scotland flights. Hebridean Air Services ends Isla service. This article is by Brian Donnelly. An airline has ended services to a famous Scottish island. Hebridean Air Services, described as Britain's smallest scheduled airline, made the move because of low passenger numbers, it said. The airline operates services from Oban to islands such as Col, Tyree and Colonsay, including routes subsidised by Argyle and Butte Council. The route to Isla, famed for its natural beauty and whisky heritage, was not subsidised. Martin McWilliam of Hebridean Air Services told the Herald 
the open eyeless service was never part of the subsidized services operated under the PSO, the Public Service Obligation, contract with Argyll and Butte Council. When Hebridean Air Services took over this contract following the demise of Highland Airways, the route was introduced and integrated into the scheduled routing with the flights to the island of Collinsay, but operated on a strictly commercial basis. He also said, The route has never been particularly profitable, and with the fall in passenger numbers following the COVID epidemic, we decided to persevere with it in the hope that passenger numbers would pick up. Mr. McWilliam added, Sadly, the passenger numbers continue to be poor, and we regrettably took the decision to stop operating to Isla. The news comes as air travel recovers following the pandemic, with new routes launched from Glasgow and a link-up with Turkish airlines flagged by the national flag carrier, the world's largest airline by country served. As Glasgow Airport reported a passenger numbers surge, Edinburgh Airport was named for a subsidy for a new route to La Palma in the Canary Islands. That article was by Brian Donnelly. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 12th of October 2023. Arts and Entertainments. Frank Skinner, This Week's Radio. By Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. So much radio listening is habitual, isn't it? Most weekends I will get up and turn on Mark Radcliffe and Stuart McConey and Sixth Music while I'm having my breakfast. It's part of my routine. So is listening to the Monday Night Club on Five Live or cooking a meal to Radio Scotland's Get It On. Habits can change, of course. A decade ago, I'd have started my Saturdays listening to Frank Skinner on Absolute Radio. Back then, I had to take my youngest daughter to acting classes in Linlithgow, and Skinner was my companion of choice in the journey. Given that Absolute is celebrating 15 years on the air, having previously been Virgin Radio, it seemed a good time to check in with him again. If last Saturday morning's show is typical, nothing much has changed. Skinner is still accompanied by Emily Dean, though now comedian Pierre Novelli is also on board. He plays a lot of music I don't particularly care for, brackets, if you feel the same, the podcast version of the show edits it out, close brackets, but he remains amusing company. For how much longer? Skinner, who's 66 now, is rather droll on the subject. He told us he had been at a Q&A with fellow Absolute DJ Dave Berry in the week celebrating Absolute's birthday. A woman said, What do you think Absolute will be like in 15 years' time? I said, there will be one notable absentee, I would have thought. Sorry, he continued, is that too dark for breakfast? A little, but honest at least. Dave was very defensive, Skinner added. He didn't suggest I might make it for a second. I guess this is the acme of bloke radio, though Skinner and his companions did end up talking about Strictly. More's the pity, because I was hoping Absolute might be a Strictly free zone, just for novelty value if nothing else, because Lord knows BBC Radio will be banging on about it for the next couple of months. Still, it was reassuring that at least Pierre Novelli doesn't watch it. Brackets, nothing against Strictly myself, but it's not compulsory no matter what the BBC might have you believe. Close brackets. When you guys discuss Strictly, Novelli said, I do feel like Prince Charles at a football game. Oh yeah, welcome to my world, medieval cathedrals, you two, Dean replied. What about when you two discuss emotions, Skinner concluded. In short, I'm remembering why I used to listen in the first place. If I ever want a break from Rad Mac, I know where to retune to. Kirsty Young returned to Radio 4 on Tuesday with a new series, Young Again, which she describes as a podcast for Radio 4. Sounds like a radio show to me, but there are three episodes already available on BBC Sounds. 
In the first episode, Young met Canadian supermodel Linda Evangelista, who turned out to be astonishingly candid, offering a vision of the fashion industry that was both excessive and scary. How come you get married at 22, Young asked her at one point? Because I was an idiot. That's a funny line, but the reality behind it was far from amusing. Did I have hashtag me too moments? Absolutely, Evangelista admitted. I was in a hashtag me too marriage. She talked too about failed cosmetic procedures and the cost, both physical and mental, that she had to pay as a result. I was never going to have my body back, never, and I still don't and I won't. But Evangelista added, she loves her scars. What are your favourite scars, Young then asked her. I guess my most recent breast cancer bilateral mastectomy, I like those ones. This was a bracing conversation, more of the same please. Finally, on Pick of the Pops last Saturday, Paul Gambaccini was replaying the hits of 1989. As it happened, they included Technotronic's Pump Up the Jam. Technotronic provided me with one of my favourite concert memories, Gambo recalled. They were supporting Madonna at Wembley and their floppy disc failed. They stood there in silence before 72,000 people and a member of the group said, Technotronic or Technotronic? I rarely get in a high dudgeon about DJs being replaced, but I can't say I'm thrilled at the prospect of Steve Wright replacing Gambaccini on Pick of the Pops this autumn. Radio Scotland ended broadcasting Pipeline back in April, but credit to presenter Gary West. He's launched his own weekly podcast, which is both a great vehicle for contemporary bagpipe music and a reminder of what a good broadcaster he is. By Teddy Jameson. This is from The Herald on Thursday the 12th of October 2023. From the news section. Bedbugs in Glasgow. Pest control expert on jump in cases. This article is written by Ginny Sanderson. There has been a jump in bedbug infestations in Glasgow in the last six months, a local pest control expert has said. Yasser Rashid of City Pest Solutions said cases has risen by about 20%, but he is uncertain whether it is connected to the recent outbreak in Paris. The pest control manager said, The last six months has seen a 20% jump in cases. I don't know if that's Paris-related or something else. In any moment in time, we are dealing with between 5 to 10 infestations in Glasgow. During the pandemic, Mr Rashid said the numbers of cases dropped because people weren't travelling. But it's back on the rise now. A particular problem, he said, are super-spreaders people who don't notice the bed bugs until it's too late. 20 to 30% of people don't know they have bed bugs when they have them. The bites don't show up, so they become super carriers. They can travel to different places and drop them off. Mr Rashid explained some of the worst hit areas in Glasgow. He said in the city centre and places like Governor, you can say bed bugs are rife. Flats are always worse. When one flat gets infected, they will travel from flat to flat through the fabric of the building. They can get really bad in some places and we have to deal with multiple properties. Short-term lets and Airbnbs also present a problem, Mr Rashid said. This style of business model is going to increase even more, he said. People aren't just going to hotels where at least they have pest control and can move quickly. You can go to holiday lets and realise you have picked up bed bugs months later. 
In a recent case, Mr. Rashid helped a couple who had picked bedbugs up on a trip to America four to five months previously and had only just discovered the infestation. He said, These things are easy enough to pick up and hard to get rid of. The faster it's picked up, the easier it is to deal with. He has dealt with infestations so bad the team has had to rip up carpets and destroy furniture in a home where hundreds of thousands of bedbugs were living. In extreme cases, we have had to really say, nothing you have is salvageable. The effort of dealing with it outweighs the cost of the items. It comes after concerns the bedbug outbreak in Paris has spread to London, with London Mayor Sadiq Khan saying incidents on the underground and other public transport are a real source of concern. They are quite hardy creatures, said Mr Rashid. They are getting more and more resilient to chemicals. A lot of people will buy kits online. I would say you have less than 1% chance of dealing with it yourself. You need far stronger chemicals than you can buy in a shop. How to spot bedbugs in your home? The most obvious thing is getting bitten, said Mr Rashid. But for the 20-30% to of people who don't have symptoms of bites, there are other ways to spot the creatures have moved in. One customer spotted strange black spots on the corner of his bedding. We lifted the bed up and it was crawling, said Mr Rashid. Sometimes you won't know anything until you physically see them or someone comes to visit and gets bitten. He says people should watch out for faecal spots, black dots clustered in corners of bedsheets. There are also blood spots left where the creatures sweat out blood they have consumed from their host. And clutches of eggs can be left, which look like specks of salt to the naked eye. How to prevent bedbugs infesting your home? There's no way to prevent bedbugs unless you live like a hermit, said Mr Rashid. You can't prevent this, but you can monitor for them, especially after visiting a new place or a trip abroad. Insect monitoring traps can help show if there is a problem, and you can purchase anti-bedbug mattress and casements, the pest control manager said. And Mr Rashid also says you should treat any fabrics or clothing suspected to be contaminated by washing them at 60 degrees for at least half an hour. However, he said, this all minimises the risk, but doesn't eliminate it. We don't want to encourage people to be paranoid, but we don't want to encourage people to be blasé. Treatments can cost anything from hundreds of pounds to thousands, depending on how severe the infestation is. One of the most expensive treatments uses advanced heat technology to cook the bed bugs alive, which can prevent furniture from having to be destroyed. However, Mr Rashid said only experts should use such methods, as working with excessive heat can start fires or create damage in the wrong hands. That article was written by Ginny Sanderson. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 12th of October 2023. From the news section. Bernard Cowan. Tributes paid to Scott killed by Hamas. This article is written by Andrew Learmonth. Tributes have been paid to Bernard Cowan, 
a Scot killed during Saturday's terrorist attack in Israel. In a statement, the family of the Newton Mayans man said he had been horrifically murdered by Hamas. More than ten British citizens are feared dead or missing following the attacks. Mr Cowan, 57, moved from Glasgow to Israel some years ago. A statement from his family released on Monday said, We are grieving the loss of our son and brother Bernard Cowan, who was horrifically murdered on Saturday during the surprise terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas. We ask for privacy at this time while we process this huge loss to our family, both at home and in Israel, and to the Jewish community in Glasgow, where he will be sorely missed. News of Mr Cowan's death came as First Minister Humza Youssef revealed he has family trapped in Gaza. Elizabeth and Magid El-Nakla, the mother and father of his wife, Nadia El-Nakla, were visiting her 90-year-old grandmother when the Hamas attack took place. They are now unable to leave to return to their Dundee home. The First Minister's brother-in-law, Mohammed, a doctor, lives in Gaza with his wife and four young children. Despite the best efforts of the British Foreign Office, nobody, nobody can guarantee them safe passage anywhere, Mr Youssef said. So, I'm in a situation where, frankly, night by night, day by day, we don't know whether or not my mother-in-law and father-in-law, who have nothing to do, as most Gazans don't, with Hamas or any terror attack, whether they will make it through the night or not. He said we cannot sleep, we are constantly watching our phones. When our messages do get through, we're waiting for a reply. He added, I'm worried about my family. There'll be many people, including in Scotland's Jewish community, for example, who will be really worried about their family in Israel that have come to harm. My thoughts go out to everybody, because innocent civilians have nothing to do with the conflict. They have nothing to do with the Hamas terror, have nothing to do with the loss of life, and they're the ones, often, innocent people who are paying the price. Mr Youssef also issued an unequivocal condemnation of the Hamas attack, describing it as unjustifiable. As well as Mr Cowan, the British fatalities include 20-year-old Nathaniel Young, a Briton serving in the Israeli Defence Services, who died at the Gaza border. Jackson Carlaw, the MSP for Eastwood, where 50% of Scotland's Jewish population live, said the death of Mr Cowan was desperately sad and grim news. He added, The family of Bernard Cowan, of late my Eastwood constituent, have confirmed that he was murdered on Saturday by Hamas. Our heartfelt condolences to his family, as we respect their privacy in their grief. May his memory be a blessing. The UK government believes around 50,000 to 60,000 British nationals are either in Israel or Gaza. Saturday's incursion by Hamas has already resulted in more than 900 fatalities, including at least 260 people at a music festival three miles from the Gaza border. 
Around 130 people, including women, children and the elderly, have been taken hostage. A Hamas spokesman has said they will murder a hostage on camera any time Israel targets civilians in Gaza. Israeli troops are battling to secure border areas taken by the Palestinian terror group. They have launched hundreds of retaliatory airstrikes since Saturday. According to authorities in Gaza, at least 700 Palestinians have been killed and another 2,900 have been injured. In London, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak chaired a COBRA meeting on Monday afternoon to discuss the crisis. He said the UK would send Benjamin Netanyahu whatever support Israel needs to defend itself. We are working with the Israeli authorities to support them and we're doing everything possible to support British citizens who were caught up in the attacks and the families of those who perished. Meanwhile, authorities in the UK have ramped up security following the attack. Home Secretary Suella Braverman is writing to police chiefs in England and Wales, urging them to step up patrols and use all available powers to prevent anti-Jewish disorder. North of the border, Police Scotland's Assistant Chief Constable Farouk Hussain said the conflict was having far-reaching consequences across the world. While there is nothing to suggest there is any threat to anyone in Scotland, we are engaging with our national partners to ensure our communities are safe, he added. East Renfrewshire Council, the local authority with responsibility for Calderwood Lodge, Scotland's only Jewish primary school, told the Herald they are liaising closely with Police Scotland to monitor the situation. They said that the usual security arrangements would be in place. However, they added that due to the ongoing events, they would remain vigilant and parents have been advised that pupils will be supported appropriately in the weeks ahead. Yesterday, Mr Netanyahu's government mobilised 300,000 reservists and ordered a complete siege of the Gaza. Deliveries of food, water and fuel have all been blocked. According to the Axios News website, Mr Netanyahu told President Biden that Israel would need to launch a ground operation. We have to go in, the Israeli leader reportedly said. We can't negotiate now. There is anxiety that a second front could open along the Lebanese border. Hezbollah fired three rockets toward an Israeli military outpost on Sunday. Palestine's ambassador to the UK has said six members of his family died from an Israeli bombardment. He said cutting water and electricity from Gaza is a war crime. Hussam Zomlot told a Labour and Palestine event on the fringes of the party conference, I have family in Gaza and it broke my heart just before I walked here to receive the news that I lost six of them only two hours ago because of an Israeli bombardment over their home. He said a cousin died along with two of her children, adding, together with her husband and their mother-in-law, the entire family was wiped out. He said Israel is seeking revenge for the Hamas atrocity, having condemned the killing of civilians. What Israel is doing now is revenge, 
sheer vengeance. Those are civilians, families. It's not going to resolve anything. Cutting water and electricity from two million people is a collective punishment. It's a war crime. It's not going to lead anywhere. That article was written by Andrew Learmonth. This is from the Herald on Thursday, the twelfth of October, twenty twenty-three, from News Section. National Park, Scotland. Nominations open for third protected space. This article is written by Jodie Harrison. Nominations have opened for Scotland's next national park, with ten expressions of interest already lodged with the government. Communities and organisations have been asked to submit their plans to become the third national park, after Loch Lomond and the Trossachs and the Cairngorms. The deadline for submissions is February the twenty-ninth, with applicants asked to demonstrate outstanding national importance due to natural or culture heritage, a distinctive character and coherent identity, how national park status would meet the specific needs of the area, and evidence of local support for the proposal. A number of areas have already submitted expressions of interest, including Galloway, the Scottish Borders. The Tay Forest, Lochaber Sky and Arsay, Afric to Allerdale, Glen Afric, the Lammermuirs, Largo Bay, and Loch Awe. Speaking on a visit to Loch Lomond, Scottish Government Minister Lorna Slater said, "Scotland's national parks are among our greatest assets. They are home to internationally renowned landscapes and nature." And provide outstanding opportunities for recreation and local communities. They also play a crucial role in tackling climate change and protecting our precious natural environment for future generations. Now is the time to add to them. We believe that a new national park should be founded upon local community demand, which is why we are launching this unique nominations process. Ms. Slater added. In May, we invited early expressions of interest, and we have already had a really positive response from communities and organisations across the length and breadth of the country. This is not at all surprising, given just how much Scotland has to offer. I encourage everyone that is considering putting forward a proposal to read the guidance that we have published on the Scottish Government website, and get in touch to find out about the support available. Bargained as part of the Butte House Agreement between the Scottish Government and the Scottish Greens, the initiative will see at least one new national park named by the next election in 2026. Nominations will be assessed against the criteria and put forward to a national park, with Nature Scot carrying out extensive investigations next summer, before legislation is laid in Holyrood to make it official. That article was written by. Jody Harrison. This is from the Herald Scotland, on Friday, the thirteenth of October, twenty twenty-three, from the news section. Glasgow considers legal action against Home Office over refugee crisis. Report by Martin Williams. Scotland's biggest council is considering legal action against the Home Office, as it fears it will breach the law through being unable to cope with moves to clear a backlog of asylum cases. 
Glasgow City Council concerns have surfaced. While the number of people in the UK waiting for a decision on their asylum claims has risen to a record high, while the UK government has set targets to clear the so-called legacy backlog by the end of this year. The SNP-led council expects around 2,500 decisions on refugee status to be made by the end of this year, which they say will place the already-stretched homelessness service under unprecedented pressure. Councils have a legal obligation to offer temporary accommodation when they assess a person or household as unintentionally homeless, but there are concerned Glasgow will not be able to handle the number of cases that are being rushed through this year. Before the asylum crisis, campaigners raised fears of a meltdown over the handling of homelessness in Glasgow, and it has emerged that, according to a June analysis, the Glasgow City Health and Social Care Partnership, HSCP, was already 1,600 light short of the 4,500 it needs annually. The Council also fears that there will be a rise in requests for emergency accommodation and that it was unlikely that the HSCP, an amalgamation of Glasgow City Council and NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, which delivers community health and social care services, would be able to source the number of accommodation placements to meet demand. A council briefing says that this would lead to a significant rise in the number of breaches of the unsuitable accommodation order, which could in turn see the local authority subject to legal challenge. Scotland's biggest city has the highest number of unsuitable accommodation order breaches in Scotland, with more than 6,000 over the year and a half to July this year. There were 3,375 in the Glasgow City Council area last year, and over 2,700 in the first six months of this year. In 2019, the then First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said that breaches should not be tolerated and said it would consider introducing sanctions on those councils that failed to comply as part of plans to transform temporary accommodation. The council believes that moves to clear the backlog will be expected to leave Glasgow's homelessness services with a £70.1 million budget black hole in the next financial year. Home office figures show that more than 175,000 people were waiting for a decision on whether they will be granted refugee status at the end of June 2023, up 44% from last year. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak set targets to clear the backlog by the end of the year in December 2022. Officials have cleared on average 2,061 of those cases a month since then. With 67,870 of the legacy cases remaining, the Home Office would have to process around 11,311 of them per month if it is to meet its target. The British Red Cross highlighted three Scots local authority areas where there are particular housing pressures for people in asylum accommodation. Glasgow City, City of Edinburgh and South Lanarkshire. While the Home Office is expected to speed up the processing of claims for refugee status, the local authority says the UK government has confirmed they have not provided any financial support to deal with the costs. The Council is now considering legal action against the Home Office. The Council leader, Susan Aitken, has said they were very likely being pushed into a position where we breach our statutory duties by decisions and actions by someone else, the Home Office and the UK Government. Lawyers for the Council said there is potential to take legal action against the Home Office and advice is to be sought by senior counsel. 
But they say that while there's legal challenges we can make, there are legal challenges that can be taken against us. City Council lawyer Kenneth MacDonald said, There is no desire not to fulfil our duties, but it's not through want of trying. It's using resources to the maximum, but those resources may not be sufficient. The Council has already been in contact with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the agency mandated to aid and protect asylum seekers. The Council says the UNHCR has been providing support and assistance. Ms Aitken said the Commissioner Filippo Grande had told her that it was completely unacceptable for cities not to be funded for the pressures policies were creating. It is estimated that 1,800 of the 2,500 would get refugee status by the end of the year. When a person receives a positive decision, they are normally given 28 days to leave the asylum seeker accommodation provided by MIRS. The Red Cross has said that with the 28-day move-on process, the time given to refugees to move from asylum support to mainstream benefits or employment, having changed It has left some people with as little as seven days to move out of their asylum accommodation. The charity warns that this could lead to devastating levels of destitution, saying it is simply not enough time for most people. Based on current data, approximately 77% of households who receive a positive decision in Glasgow and get official refugee status go on to make a homelessness application with the local authority. It would mean an additional 1,386 homelessness applications would be made to the HSCP by the end of December 2023. It is estimated that 74% of households dealt with by the Asylum and Refugee Support Team are already currently occupying temporary accommodation. The Council says that if this remains constant, it will mean that 1,026 of the 1,386 refugee households are likely to require temporary accommodation pending an offer of settled accommodation being made. A council analysis says it is not clear where additional lets could be found. They say if accommodation cannot be sourced, this could lead to an increase in rough sleeping. It is estimated that there is likely to be around 700 negative asylum decisions. These households will have no recourse to public funds, NRPF, and therefore have no rights to access homelessness services. Anne-Marie O'Donnell, the Council's Chief Executive, and Suzanne Miller, Chief Officer of the HSEP, has told councillors, Given the scale of these figures, there is every likelihood that Glasgow will see an increased pattern of people with NRPF rough sleeping, like other parts of the UK requiring intense outreach capacity from third sector, health and social care support, for those who are deemed most vulnerable. The HSCP has been seeking to cut back on its use of high-cost hotel and bed and breakfast accommodation, as it already faces overspending its budget by £16.646 million. The British Red Cross has estimated that 53,100 asylum seekers who are seeking refugee status will be at risk of being without a home across the UK if the government clears the backlog on decisions. The charity said that even if decision-making on asylum claims is not sped up and the target not met, 26,000 people could still be at risk of destitution and homelessness. The Glasgow City Council area was earmarked as having the highest housing pressure of any local authority in Scotland, while housing 4,267 in asylum accommodation. The pressure on housing is rated at 10 out of a scale of 1 to 10.
The Red Cross says that while more decisions are being made on asylum claims due to the streamlined asylum process, it is putting an increasing amount of pressure on local authorities to support people to find housing quickly. An asylum seeker is a person who flees their home country, enters another country and applies for the right to international protection and to stay in that country. In the UK, asylum seekers are not allowed to work and must rely on state support. Housing is provided, but asylum seekers cannot choose where it is. Earlier this week, the Housing Minister Paul McLennan warned local authorities they are legally obliged to support the homeless with accommodation as it emerged the numbers who say they have been rough sleeping before seeking emergency help have soared by up to fivefold in a year in Scotland. Official returns show that some of the most affluent local authority areas have seen the biggest growth in cases where there was at least one member of a household who had experienced rough sleeping in the three months prior to making a homelessness application. Across Scotland in 2022-23, there were 2,440 cases, a rise of 295, 14% from the previous year. But the Falkirk Council area has seen the biggest escalation with rough sleeping cases rising from 5 to 30 in the year. In Glasgow, the numbers dipped from 385 in 2021-22 to 340 in 2022-23. Susan Aitken said, The Home Office is embarking on a course of action which will be devastating for refugees and for cities across the UK. For Glasgow... A sudden cost of around £50 million is simply unmanageable and the suffering caused to thousands of people who will suddenly be pushed into destitution is simply unimaginable. I want to see people humanely treated by the asylum system. Refugees and immigrants have enriched Glasgow's culture for centuries and I am so proud that people want to make their home here. But this unstructured, unplanned and ill-conceived action will cause massive harm to people and to institutions across the country. The Home Office is doing this as a cover to their failure. They want to free up space in the north of England and Scotland to allow them to empty hotels in the south. They hope this will convince their voters they are getting a grip. Out of sight, out of mind, is now the entirety of their asylum policy. Even at this late stage, we can work with the Home Office. They need to do this in a planned and structured way and they need to provide cities with the resources to manage this. The human and financial cost of their current course is simply too much. A UNHCR spokesman said it was aware of the important work underway in Glasgow to include refugees in the city's social, economic and civic life, which has highlighted the benefits that inclusion brings for both refugees and host communities. The spokesman added... The commitment of the Scottish people to protect refugees and to their warm welcome and integration into Scotland is very much appreciated. A Home Office spokesman said, The pressure on the asylum system has continued to grow, which is why we have taken immediate action to speed up processing times and cut costs for taxpayers. To minimise the risk of homelessness, we encourage individuals to make their onward plans as soon as possible after receiving their decision whether that is leaving the UK following a refusal or taking steps to integrate in the UK following a grant. We offer ample support once claims have been granted through migrant help, access to the labour market and advice on applying for universal credit. That report was by Martin Williams. From the Herald, Scotland, 
Friday the 13th of October from the sports section Rabbi on FA Faith Group resigns over response to Hamas attacks This article is unattributed A rabbi working on a football association faith group has resigned over the governing body's response to the Hamas attacks on Israeli citizens last weekend Alex Goldberg wrote to the FA to say he was profoundly disappointed that there were no plans for a specific tribute to the victims of those attacks. He said the decision not to light up the Wembley Arch in the colours of the Israeli flag ahead of the friendly between England and Australia on Friday night had been received badly and also questioned the decision not to permit the flags of any nation to be brought into Wembley besides those of England and Australia. Many see that that statement not only to permit flags and representations of the competing nations as eradicating Jewish symbols and that it has compounded grievances with the gravity of the recent events, but also inadvertently neglects the security and emotional well-being of Jewish fans who may be in attendance, he wrote in a letter published by the Jewish News. The FA responded to Rabbi Gober's letter by saying, We are sorry to hear of Rabbi Alex's decision to resign from his role in our faith and football group. Although this is an informal group, this is not part of the FA's governance structure. We are grateful for the support he has provided over the years. It is also important to clarify that our decision not to allow Israeli or Palestine flags into Wembley Stadium was made at the direct request of senior members of the Jewish community. The FA announced plans on Thursday for players to wear black armbands and for those inside the stadium to observe a period of silence to remember the innocent victims of the devastating events in Israel and Palestine. The decision not to light up the arch in Israeli colours was even criticised by the cabinet minister responsible for sport, Lucy Fraser, in a social media post on Thursday. The campaign against anti-Semitism has called on the FA and the Premier League to also specifically condemn the Hamas attacks. In a letter from CAA's chief executive Gideon Falter to his counterparts at the FA and the Premier League on Friday, he wrote, To decline to eliminate the stadium for fear of backlash is cowardly. It broadcasts to terrorists that their objective, to stoke terror, has succeeded. To prohibit the flying of Israeli flags by fans in solidarity with the victims is an abomination. To put out a pitiful statement, as the FA has done, lamenting the devastating events without having the integrity to name the cause, as if the deaths came about from a tragic natural disaster, is insulting. As if some dramatic restatement of its values, the FA says that it stands for humanity and an end to the death, violence, fear and suffering. Prove it. From our vantage point, it does not appear that the FA is standing at all. It is sitting on its hands. It is time for the FA and the Premier League to condemn the Hamas terrorist attacks explicitly and without reservation and light up the stadium to broadcast that Jewish victims deserve the same treatment as others. I do not need a response to this letter. I will simply observe Wembley Stadium tonight and I will know whether you stand with Jews or not. Football anti-discrimination charity Kick It Out said what happened in Israel and Gaza had once again provided a reminder of where hatred and discrimination can lead and how it can have far-reaching consequences. We stand against hatred and discrimination in all its forms and we stand by the communities who are mourning relatives and living in fear. Its statement continued. In such times, the role of football can offer a release and bring communities closer together. So this weekend, as always, we urge fans, 
participants and players at all levels to respect each other and their differences. We are aware from our partners, Community Security Trust and Tell Mama, that there have been a huge increases in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents over the past week. Many people will be hurting, and the last thing anyone needs is to feel threatened or discriminated against, no matter their background. Therefore, we are calling for compassion and calm from all those who take part in football and beyond. And that article was unattributed. The Herald, on the 13th of October, and the Voices section. Catherine Salmond, diversity means we won't be in an echo chamber. We have welcomed many new writers to the Herald team over the last year. Danny Garavelli, James McCurney, Kerry Hudson, Daniela Veris, and Kat Boyd, to name a few. Why? Their talent, of course. For one, of course that they offer in their specialist fields for our readers and therefore to strengthen the Herald brand through the quality of content they give every day. This is their similarity, but their differences are our collective strength, and that is also why they are asked to join my team. They are all individually brilliant thinkers and writers, but they are also very different and come at things from different angles and backgrounds. A varied and bold team, and how wonderful is that? I understand that many people go to a news brand to have their views reinforced, to feel the title reflects their stance on life and society. That feeling of reinforcements is satisfying, but most people also like to have their views challenged, or to have new ideas or areas of interest introduced to them. It's my job as editor to make sure we are not an echo chamber by ensuring our content is diverse and wide-ranging. Our columnists cover a spectrum of views, while also ensuring this is built on the foundations of accuracy, trust and quality. On Thursday night, I was delighted to attend the Herald's Diversity Awards in Glasgow, the eighth annual event of its kind to celebrate inclusion and difference across Scotland. It was moving, to say the least, to hear about trailblazing work being done in our country to make workspaces and therefore society more inclusive. The list of finalists, not to mention nominees, was inspiring, covering areas such as education, sport, the public and charity sectors, and campaign work. The standout for me was the inaugural Lynn Connolly Achievement Award, given in honour of a 49-year-old who lost her life to cancer earlier this year. As an Aberdeen employee, Lynn was its global head of diversity, a force for good and a driver in getting these annual awards off the ground all those years ago. The tributes paid by those who knew her were moving. Every workforce needs a Lynn Connolly, or ideally an entire team of Lynn Connollys, who understand why diversity to influential, uh, influence societal change is so important. At the Herald, although we have taken steps to diversify the voices and content we offer to you, our readers, we know there's still work to be done, and we are not standing still with that. To truly represent our readership and, and it understand and celebrate it, our newsroom must be wide-ranging. Our eyes are open and alive to the challenges and needs. And that was by Catherine Sand. The Herald on 13th of October and the Voices section. Brexit, UK economy, Labour too close to Tories by Ian McConnell. Meh is probably the colloquialism that best sums up the elements of the speeches from the Labour leaders Sir Starmer and Shadow 
Chancellor Rachel Reeves, which related to the economy. Both politicians seemed determined to remain on safe ground as they addressed the Labour Party's annual conference in Liverpool. They both appeared to studiously avoid delving into the thorny issue of Brexit in their addresses. This is probably no great surprise, given Labour has made it plain it would not reverse Brexit and that it would not even rejoin the single market or customers' union. Rejoining the single market would, at a stroke, deliver huge economic benefit relative to where we are now. Brexit, of course, has caused and will continue to result in enormous damage to the UK economy and living standards. But Labour seems, for now at least, unwilling to tell that to the electorate. We are a long way indeed from those days back in 2019 when Sakia was arguing vociferously against Brexit. Ms Reeves told the conference, it falls to us to show that Labour is ready to serve, ready to lead and ready to rebuild Britain. In chess, you learn to think several moves ahead. But even I couldn't have predicted the mayhem we have seen, week after week, year after year, from this Conservative government. First austerity, then Brexit without a plan, and then their kamikaze budget. Note the Brexit without a plan. This is somewhat disappointing. The simple fact of the matter is that Brexit was always going to be detrimental with or without a plan. The least damaging form of Brexit would be with the UK having membership of the single market, but that is, as observed already, something Labour has ruled out. In his speech, Keir referenced Brexit in the following segment. You know they, the Conservatives, actually believe what comes out of their mouths. When your public services were cut to the bone, and they said we're all in it together. When they told you to your face that Brexit would only bring benefits to your business. When they say now that they're taking tough decisions for you in this cost-of-living crisis. That was the only mention of Brexit in Sakia's speech. To be fair, the Labour leader, he... To the Labour leader, he is absolutely right with his observation about what was happening to public services when former Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron was trotting out the all-in-this-together line. What is less clear is whether the Tories do actually believe what comes out of their mouths. Surely they could not be that foolish all of the time. Sakir and Ms Reeves made the right sort of noises about employment rights in their speeches, albeit there has understandably been some concern expressed by Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham about Labour appearing to have rolled back on some of its pledges on this front and about infrastructure spending. However, crucially, the speeches at the Labour Party's conference seem generally to have an eye on safety, like a fickle centre-half who hoofs the ball away when under no pressure, rather than taking the time to be creative and do something more meaningful. Renationalisation of some key sectors is something at least worthy of debate at the moment, particularly given the enormous failure that the Tories privatisation of the likes of the UK electricity and gas sector and English water industry has turned out to be. However, it did not figure in the speeches from Ms Reeves or Secure. Delegates had supported a motion from Trade Unite seeking to reaffirm Labour's commitment to public ownership of railways and the energy industry. This appeared to cut no ice with the Labour leadership, however. North of the border, ScotRail has been taken into Scottish government ownership. Labour's proposal for the setting up of a publicly owned clean energy company based in Scotland, Great British Energy, was flagged by Sakia. 
this might be a start, but it certainly does not look like a compelling answer for the UK's energy sector. Whoa. Speakers from Secure and Ms. Reeves just generally seem to lack the extent of distinction in terms of economic policies that you might have expected from Labour after a long period of rule by the Tories, particularly given the right-wing nature of its current vintage of Conservatives and their dismal performance. Labour also seems lamentably keen to embrace the British nationalism that was harnessed to deliver Brexit. This all adds to the impression of a lack of clear blue water between Labour and the Tories, particularly given Labour's lead in the polls, it would be good to see something bolder from the parties in terms of a plan to turn around the UK's economic fortunes. However, Sakir and Miss Reeves seem a little too afraid of their own shadows. Conservatives back in 2010 put around the message that Labour had somehow been responsible for the global financial crisis. The word global is enough to tell you this Tory claim was false. And former Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown and his then-Chancellor Alistair Darling did a great job of coming up, in short order, with a sound plan to stave off collapse in the UK banking sector. Labour needs to be bolder and get away from the cautious broad-brush messages which sound okay but lack substance and detail and do not really offer the type of inspiring alternative that is needed to Tory policies that have choked off growth for so long. For some reason... Labour seems afraid of being viewed as irresponsible with the public finances. Yet the Tories had increased the UK's public sector net debt down from £1 trillion when they came into power in 2010 to £1.8 trillion, even before the advent of the coronavirus pandemic. Labour could do a better job of highlighting the Tories' fiscal irresponsibility. The other crucial thing that Labour needs to get its head around is that the public finances have two sides to them, spending and revenue. Boosting growth would help increase tax revenues and provide more money to spend. Labour has sadly committed to embracing the Brexit drag on growth and tax revenues, which will constrain the amount of money flowing into the public coffers. And Labour is meanwhile giving a similar impression to the Tories that they would be running things like a tight household budget if they got into power. A good illustration of this came back in the spring when Sakir U-turned on his pledge to abolish university tuition fees in England under social justice, one of his 10 pledges in 2020. When he was standing for Labour leader, he promised to support the abolition of tuition fees and invest in lifelong learning. However, asked about his pledge on BBC Radio 4's Today programme in the spring, Sakir replied, We are likely to move on from that commitment because we do find ourselves in a difficult financial situation. He added there were other ways of approaching this, adding that his party could not ignore the current economic situation ahead of the next election. This is lamentable. Abolition of university tuition fees in England would not cost that much in the scheme of things. Maybe should remember it could make big choices on spending and tax and come up with an alternative to the bad Tory policymaking that is actually inspiring. And that was by Ian McConnell. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 16th of October, from the news section, HIV stigma now more harmful than disease, say campaigners. Report by Caroline Wilson 
only a third of Scots would be comfortable kissing someone with HIV, according to new research released to coincide with the first major TV advert since the falling tombstone campaign of the 1980s. Campaigners say the lack of knowledge and ongoing stigma about the infection is now more harmful than the disease itself. With an early diagnosis and effective treatments, most people with HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, will not develop any age-related illnesses and will live a near-normal lifespan. Drugs are available that suppress levels of HIV in the blood to undetectable levels, which means the immune system is protected from damage and it cannot be passed on to partners. The first major new TV advert since the UK government's Don't Die of Ignorance campaign will be aired on STV tonight to provide a decades overdue update on treatment advances according to the Terence Higgins Trust. It will air at 7.58pm shortly before Coronation Street as part of a wider campaign on billboards, newspapers and online. The film is informed by Scottish Government funded research by the Sexual Health Charity which found worryingly low levels of knowledge about HIV. Only a third, 35% of people in Scotland said they would be happy to kiss someone living with HIV despite it being known since the 1980s that HIV can't be passed on through saliva. Research involving a thousand Scottish adults also shows almost half, 46%, would be ashamed to tell other people they were HIV positive and just a third were aware that people living with HIV and on effective treatment can't pass it on to their partners. The film draws on the real experiences of people living with HIV in Scotland, including a father pulling his hand away after his daughter says she's positive, and a nurse putting on a second pair of gloves during a hospital appointment. Last year, the number of heterosexuals newly diagnosed with HIV was higher than in gay and bisexual men in Scotland for the first time in 15 years, according to the latest data from Public Health Scotland. The film was produced by award-winning Scottish agency Stand, which was behind Police Scotland's high-profile Don't Be That Guy campaign to reframe the conversation on sexual violence and male sexual entitlement. Emma McAnally, a 34-year-old woman living with HIV from Glasgow, said, HIV hasn't limited my hopes and aspirations in any way, but the stigma has been the single biggest barrier of my diagnosis. Unfortunately, this stigma deeply affected me, my family and friends didn't know how to respond and it was pretty horrific for me. Eventually, I became determined not to let that shame define me. Having children was the biggest turning point for me because as I became so confident in my body and by being on effective treatment, I knew I could give birth to my son and daughter and they would be HIV negative. It's incredible to see a long overdue TV advert on the reality of HIV in 2023 and how stigma is now more harmful than the virus itself. I hope it helps people living with HIV who are struggling to come to terms with their diagnosis feel a little less alone and also educates and raises awareness. Richard Angel, Chief Executive of Terence Higgins Trust, said The government's AIDS awareness advert in the 1980s undoubtedly saved lives, but it also cast a long shadow by terrifying a generation about HIV. 
Our new film was based on the direct experiences of people living with HIV in Scotland who shared how much of a challenge the stigma still surrounding HIV is in their day-to-day lives, in hospital, on dating apps and even in their own homes. Jenny Minto, Public Health Minister for Scottish Government, added, 40 years ago, an HIV diagnosis was regarded as a death sentence. Today, people with the virus are able to live long, happy and healthy lives thanks to effective treatment. And that report was by Caroline Wilson. This is from the Herald Scotland. On Monday the 16th of October 2023. From Voices section. I set myself a target on books. This is what I learned. Report by Daniela Tice. It all started with one of many New Year's resolutions I decided to embrace. I can't say exactly when... But at some point towards the end of last year, I decided I wanted to read 25 books in 2023. It felt like a good number. It would be just over double the amount I had read in 2022, a year where I had no set goal in mind. An average of around two books a month. Challenging, yes, but also realistic. Why set myself this task? The obvious thought was to simply read more. But part of it was about identity too. I wanted to see how I would find it, as reading was something I had loved so much when I was younger, only to then grow up and hardly ever find myself embracing the hobby at all. Reading and writing was something I was naturally good at in primary school. At one point, my teacher at the time even started bringing in extra books from her personal collection for me to take home. I don't remember all the books from back then, but some I do. I can still recall the general plot of Eric Kastner's Das Doppelit Lochchen. Fun fact, many might, on the surface, not know this book, but the old German story, published in 1949, is what the popular movie The Parent Trap is based on. Maybe it will forever stick with me, because it really symbolised my teacher's kindness. I spilled a big glass of orange juice all over the book, which stained and wrinkled its pages. The event led to a tearful confession in front of said teacher, who responded by smiling and despite what I thought would happen, giving me a new book to read. Other books stuck because of the lessons I learned. I still remember Astrid Lindgren's The Brother Lionheart deeply scaring me, but also making me think about death, for example. Even the books I don't remember the plotline of, I remember how they made me feel. I found a whole box of them in my father's loft a few months back, Looking at the illustrated hardcover bindings, some with my name scribbled inside them, I felt a sense of longing and belonging while holding them in my hands. The same hands my mum says she used to have to pry them from so I would go to sleep. Anyway, it wasn't to last. My love for books continued for a few years after starting high school, but then, for whatever reason, somewhat faded for quite some time. I was busy with life and reading took a back seat. My interest only returned when I was away travelling, and not having any other commitments at that point, I suddenly had a lot more time. Someone gave me a book, and from then on, I started reading again. I've been reading semi-regularly again for around five years now, and have, page by page, been rediscovering my love for doing it. Still, my attempts were always a bit half-hearted. While I was enjoying reading, it would always still be something I only did when conditions were just right. 
when I was off for a long period of time, holidays or long weekends mostly, not an everyday thing. So to make it a proper habit, I set myself the above challenge. Like a lot of people, I don't often keep these New Year, New Me ambitions beyond the first week of January, but this one stuck. I have read pretty much every day this year, even if it was only a page or two. Now mid-October, with 11 weeks left in 2023, I am on course and about to finish book number 21. Aside from feeling accomplished and proud, maybe a little smug really, I also feel that this year of reading has taught me lessons beyond what I imagined it would. For one, it improved my writing. I am exploring imagery far more than I did this time last year and no more words each month that passes. When I discover a new word, I think about how to show off my knowledge by weaving it in somewhere with almost childlike excitement. Books also made me feel part of something. One of my best friends and I have been sharing books with each other. If you would have asked me a year ago, I would have probably not thought of anything that would bring us closer than we already were, but books have. We swap batches of them regularly, give each other synopses and talk about our favourite aspects. It has given me another layer to our friendship that I love. I am hoping to join a book club to perhaps get even more of all that, but that will be 2024's goal. The other is that I have found the discipline to make time for something. For too long I felt I didn't have enough time to read. However, looking at it and setting myself this challenge, I came to realise I did. I just chose to spend it differently. I have to admit that, for me, readjusting the time I had available was fairly easy. I am in my 20s with no children or commitments that reach beyond taking care of myself and work. So I'm not saying that every person that doesn't read every day is undisciplined, or that the alternatives, TV, sitting on my phone, are bad. More that, for me, it was a lesson in prioritising. If I wanted to read two books in one month, I would have to make time for it. But I think the most valuable lesson for me is coming to realise once again quite how much reading fiction can teach you about the world. I started the year with Matt Haig's Midnight Library, in which the book's protagonist enters a world between life and death and gets to try out alternate lives she could have lived. Made me think about obsessing too much about past lives and my tendency to obsess over what if. Dolly Alderson's Everything I Know About Love, detailing the author's own journey through her 20s, made me think about the value of friendships and platonic love. Nadine Aisha Jassat's The Story's Grandma Forgot made me laugh and cry. Mostly, it made me wish I could have viewed my own family members' experience with Alzheimer's through the eyes of the book's child protagonist, with the patience and nuance she would have deserved. One of my more recent reads, Yomi Adegoki's The List, in which a soon-to-be bride has to face serious allegations against her fiancé and has to decide who to side with, made me think about social media and how quickly things online can have offline consequences. Overall, as my year of reading comes to an end, I have come to realise I have never felt as much calm about myself and within myself as I do now. Maybe it is the timing and getting older, but I don't think so. I think it is the magical power of books. That report was by Daniela Tice. From the Herald Scotland, 
Tuesday the 17th of October, from the opinion section. Social media, like X, is best when people say nothing at all, by Katrina Stewart. The worst thing, and I appreciate that's a bold claim given the many things that one could name, about social media is a misapprehension it has created that everyone must have an opinion and that their opinion matters. Worse, not only that it matters, but that it is important. Linked to this, there is a weird oxymoronic position that one cannot express a meaningful opinion on a subject unless one has expressed an opinion on that subject previously. But also, that if you have never expressed an opinion on a certain subject, then you either don't care enough about it, or you secretly on the side of some non-specific bad guys. I was surprised to find out find that last week marked my ex, formerly known as Twitter, 11th anniversary. Surprised mostly because not, it's not exactly a diary moment, but also because time has begun to do this weird elastic thing where every event feels simultaneously 5 minutes and 20 years ago. I remember the training session at work on how to grow a Twitter following, given to just a small group of us, when the social media platform felt new and exciting and important. Gathering followers was significant, a sign of success. You really were someone if enough people clicked follow on your profile. At the time, I had more than a thousand, which apparently was a decent number then. What a downward spiral since those innocent days, not least a rapid recent coil towards calamity following the platform's Elon Musk takeover. On the whole, I count myself unusually lucky with my ex-experience. I've made connections on the platform that have spilled over to be real-world friendships. I've had work from it. More, more stories than I can count. There are some fascinating people with truly informative and useful output who are a joy to learn from. There are animal videos and jokes. And I, very fortunately, don't suffer much abuse, certainly nothing like what I see levelled at other women. But that positive experience is most likely because I go against the grain of what the platform currently stands for, which is to take a stand. Doesn't matter what, any stand, just take one. My work sees me paid actual cash money to have an opinion and yet, quite often, I wish I didn't have to have one simply because, simply, I don't. Or, on occasion, I have thoughts or uncertainties and I am very, very grateful to work for editors at The Herald who are happy to have issues explored questioningly rather than proclaimed stridently. But it's a privilege to have 1,100 words to play with rather than 280 characters. So, online, I usually don't bother. It's the antithesis of growing a follower count but also the antithesis to stridency and culture wars. If we try as much as possible, to take our debates offline or have them privately, then the heat is removed. There is always a deep dismay to seeing people who I've met in real life and had interesting and reflective conversations with, who have openly expressed views to, and who have been responsive to those views, simply shouting at people when their thoughts have to be distilled to a restricted character count. There's a shallow gotcha often used on Twitter slash X, whereby, mid-dispute, one poster will actually search the other poster's timeline to see how many times previously they have mentioned this particular subject. If that search comes up empty, then this is supposed to be some kind of moral triumph. Oh, I see you've never discussed this before, 
why do you suddenly care now? Similarly, profiles will be searched for keywords and, if these are lacking, the person lambasted for the lack of condemnation of slash allyship with that topic. Basically, if you fail to condemn then you must condone. But it is irresponsible to profess expertise you do not have and, more, egotistical. Yet, this doesn't stop folks sharing the most egregiously ill-informed takes on everything from the Middle East to Gaelic education to Americans confidently opinioning about no-go areas in British cities or the failings of the NHS. People care less about the sins and ego of arrogance and bullying than they do about ensuring they've taken a stand, been on the right side of history and made sure everyone knows. That's not to say campaigning is wrong. Campaigning is very right and social media is an endlessly useful platform for it. It's fine, also, to stand with no one or to stand privately or to just not understand enough to stand. I'm trying to think of X in 11 years time. Do I want the platform to still exist in another decade? Honestly, I don't know. Meet me for coffee and we can talk it over. In that article, it was by Katrina Stewart. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 17th of October, from the Voices section, Too Many Managers Still Failing the Competency Test? Article by Christy Dorsey. Poor managers lead to poor organisational outcomes, yet the debate on the UK's foundering productivity almost always focuses on frontline workers. Since the pandemic, there's been plenty of discussion about whether staff are keeping up the pace when working from home. A seemingly endless stream of studies on whether employees are more productive when in the office has shed little light, with conflicting findings depending on who's asking and answering the questions. There's also been a lot of advice doled out on how bosses can best cope when managing remote workers, but this overlooks a more fundamental question of whether they were doing a particularly good job of this in the first place when they were face-to-face. Fresh research out yesterday from the Chartered Management Institute, CMI, suggests many are struggling regardless of circumstances. According to the CMI, bad management has prompted one in three employers employees to quit their job at some point in their careers. Among those who were reportedly they were currently working for an ineffective manager, one third said they were less motivated to do a good job and half were considering quitting within the next 12 months. Results from another survey earlier this year on LinkedIn adds further to evidence that rather than providing confidence and motivation, most managers are having the opposite effect. When asked if they were less stressed when their manager was off sick or on annual leave, a whopping 88% of participants said yes. It has been argued that the UK has a historic legacy of poor management that has been perpetuated by a lack of investment in management and leadership skills. Too many ascend on their technical expertise or functional capability rather than their ability to lead a team and they're left to muddle their way through as they figure it out the latter. John Van Rienen, a professor at the London School of Economics, has tracked the impact of managers since 2004. He says the first 18 years of his World Management Survey confirm a significant link between management practices and productivity, suggesting that up to a third of the productivity gap between different countries and different companies could be attributed to management. 
Mr Van Reenen's work also shows that the UK's reasonable standing in the management league tables relies on the skills of executives in British subsidiaries of foreign companies. In other words, domestic corporations are struggling to nurture homegrown leadership talent. This is important because economists have long been concerned about the UK's lagging productivity, which is a major factor in fostering better living standards across the board. The more efficient an economy is, the more that can be produced in a sustainable fashion, and the more productive an employee is, the more he or she is likely to be paid. According to the Office for National Statistics, ONS, output per hour worked in the first quarter of this year was only 0.6% higher than the pre-pandemic average of 2019, continuing the trend of stagnant productivity growth since the 2008 financial crisis. Between 1949 and 2007, the UK's gross domestic product, GDP, increased on average by 2.7% each year. But from 2008 up to 2021, that plunged to an average of 0.9%, with expectations that growth will nearly half again to 0.46% per annum between 2022 and 2025. Much of this is down to a short-sighted failure to invest in infrastructure required for long-term growth, such as better transport links, a strong healthcare system and improvements in education and training. Poor business leadership is only one part of the puzzle, but it is one of the few that organisations can and should take ownership of, rather than passing the buck to politicians. Would anyone hire a solicitor who has never been to law school, or take their car to a mechanic who had no automotive training? Would they visit a doctor who hasn't been to medical school? Of course not, and yet, more than 10 years ago, the CMI found that 4 out of 5 managers in the UK had no leadership training at the time when they took on their management responsibilities. And, though these accidental managers are costing employers tens of billions every year, the situation hasn't improved with the research released yesterday showing this is still the case amongst 82% of new managers. This stuff is dragging down businesses, dragging down the economy, and also stimming the ability of public services to do what we need them to do, said Anthony Painter, Director of Policy at CMI. Economists have looked at this and they think something in order of a third of the difference between us and the most productive countries is down to the quality of management and leadership. Right there is the reality. He added, In any skilled area of modern work, you'd expect people in positions of competence to receive at least minimal training. You want your plumbers to be trained. You want your cyber security people to be trained. Well, the same is true of managers. The fact that 82% haven't received training when they become managers, that tells us really how seriously we're taking management and its importance collectively. For most organisations, the solution isn't more layers of management abated by swelling ranks of consultants, but rather having people in leadership positions with the skills to motivate staff and let them get on with their jobs. This applies all the way to the top. If the chief executives of the UK's biggest companies are as exceptional in their salaries imply, why are they not focused on this, one of the few things which is completely within their power that will boost productivity across the organisation and the wider economy? About one in every four people in the workforce is in some sort of managerial position, with most left to rely on their internal compass as to how best to get on with it. Some gifted amateurs will succeed, but... When you look at the stakes involved, it seems an unnecessarily excessive amount has been left to chance. 
and the article was by business correspondent Christy Dorsey. That concludes this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Q and Review and to tell your friends about our service.